season premiere of Canary in a Coal Mine is brought to you by Evec for all your travel accessories. You know, my wife has been telling me for ages that I pack like a slob and my stuff is everywhere and I'm living out of a suitcase. So they have these amazing travel cubes. But the other thing that they are focusing on right now, which is fascinating, is they have covers for seats and everything you need to wipe down your seats on the airplane so you can be 100% sanitary and free of coronavirus and COVID, everything you need for safe travel in these uncertain times. Make sure you pick up EVEC products found on Amazon and their website, evec.com. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine, Season 2. The Seattle City Council is back in business, which means that I have a whole lot more material to use, but also you can see there are awful policies in display across the entire country. I have been warning you for years, literally years before I had this podcast, before I wrote articles for the Post Millennial, I've been talking about how these bad policies were going to spread out across the country and affect everybody else. Most of you did not listen. Some of you did. Make sure you follow my Facebook page, Ari Hoffman for Seattle. Make sure you follow my Twitter, The Hoffather. Make sure you go on all my social media channels and make sure that you keep up to date with all the insanity that is heading your way and maybe you can be the canary in a coal mine for your neighborhood. So let's get right down to business. Marxist Seattle City Council member Kashama Sawant has been funneling money from the Tax Amazon campaign to her husband and members of her political group, the Socialist Alternative. The most recent filing with the Public Disclosure Commission for the Tax Amazon campaign included Sawant's husband, Calvin Priest, who works for the Socialist Alternative. In the past, Sawant claimed that she would only take $40,000 a year and ordinary worker's salary and give the rest of her city council salary to a solitary fund to help build social justice movements. These movements are Sawant's own political organizations that then pay her husband's salary and cover travel for the couple. They go speaking at all these socialist events, they go everywhere to make trouble, trying to raise her own profile. It's their own company. Let's be real about this. According to SCC Insight, on Twitter, Sawant and Priest had over 13000 of travel paid for them over the course of 2017. 1850 by the Movement for the 99% and 11176 by Socialist Alternative. Priest also works for Socialist Alternative, and Sawant reported that he received between 10000 and 25000 in income from that job. SEC Insight notes that in 2018, Sawant gave $13,800 to Socialist Alternative, and Socialist Alternative in turn spent over $11,000 flying Sawant and Priest around the world. During her first campaign in 2013, Sawant, the anti-capitalist activist, received criticism for pushing her socialist views while her previous husband made a six-figure income at Microsoft. Swan's home is also valued at over a million dollars. So socialism for thee, but not for me. That seems to be par for the course. So anybody who says, oh, socialism is going to be great for the working man, they're moving out of Seattle. They're moving all the companies out of Seattle. Working man can't afford to live here anymore. So tell me how this is better for the working man. In addition to Sawant's husband, previous workers on Sawant's election campaigns were listed on the filing as having been paid by the Tax Amazon campaign. Mind you, the Tax Amazon campaign has been done for a while, but we'll get to that. Eva Metz was an organizer with the committee to re-elect Kishama Sawant and with Red May Seattle, an organization that operates anti-capitalist events in Seattle. Rosemary Daniels, a graphic designer with the re-elect Sawant campaign, was also listed as having received money from the campaign. The last two listed on the filing are Hannah Swoboda and Joe Sugru. Both work with Sawant's, you know, organization, I'm sorry, company, the Socialist Alternative. As noted by SEC Insight, the Socialist Alternative for many years, it was registered with the IRS as a 501c4 social welfare organization, but in 2013 it stopped filing the required annual Form 990 financial disclosure, a nonprofit's equivalent of a tax return. And in 2016, the IRS revoked its 501 status. SEC Insight continues, the domain name socialistalternative.org is registered to the Seattle office, and the administrative contract is Ted, contact, sorry, is Ted Verdone, a longtime Socialist Alternative member and currently a legislative assistant working for Sawant. Payola, that's what we're talking about here. Sawant faced ethics charges in 2019 for allowing the Socialist Alternative to make decisions for her council office. The Seattle City Council passed the Jumpstart Seattle legislation, a.k.a. the Amazon tax, in July. And yet these payments were listed on the August filing. Though, on the surface, some may claim that this could be the result of bookkeeping by the campaign left over from July. 
very fair. I know that my campaign, when it was over in August, we were still paying bills in September. I hear that argument 100%. However, the tax Amazon initiative was designed to put the new tax on the November ballot. The money was raised and signatures were collected to qualify for the ballot, but the deadline to submit those signatures was July 2nd, and the signatures were never submitted, most likely because the council legislation was an almost certainty or did not get enough signatures. That would be interesting if that was the case. Either way, bills would have been paid and filed at the end of the effort in July, yet the campaign still had approximately 90000 unspent donated campaign money that appears to now be going to Salant's allies. What do you do with $90,000 once left over? Pay off all your buddies. Make sure they know that you appreciate them. Though this could be seen by some as just normal campaign staffing practices, also listed on the filing is Sure Payroll, which is listed as a vendor for payroll taxes. Payroll taxes are approximately 7% of wages paid. Sure Payroll has been itemized for over $20,000 of expenditures in the last three months, and yet the campaign has not disclosed who the recipients of that money is. This also raises the question of why Salant's allies were not on the regular payroll as the other employees of the campaign were. Salant's grifting, questionable funding practices, were also brought to light again Monday, yesterday, when she asked the Seattle City Council to pay for her defense against a recently filed recall petition. So let me make sure I get this right, straight. Her actions cause a group to file a recall, and now she wants us, the citizens, our taxpayer money to pay for her defense against a recall. It's her own damn fault. This is not the first time Seattle taxpayers have footed the bill for Salant's legal bills. In 2019, the city of Seattle paid for Salant's defense against a defamation suit filed by two Seattle police officers over public statements she made demonizing them in statements regarding a shooting of a suspect that was found to have posed a threat of death or severe injury. In 2018, the city paid over $250,000 to defend Salant in another defamation suit brought by a landlord, Carl Hagland, who Salant called a notorious slumlord, and according to Hagland's attorney, defamed him, suggested him to discriminatory tr treatment, and violated his privacy, due process, takings, and equal protection rights as Salant used him and his name to pass legislation. So already, you're into this for what? Maybe four or $500,000? And rumor has it that the new one today that they're talking about passing at the council is another $75,000 on top of that. So you're talking to over half a million dollars in legal expenses that city taxpayers have had to cover for Salant's insanity. By the way, here's what she's being recalled over. The fact that she, among many other things, let a whole bunch of the crazies who occupied Capitol Hill in Seattle into City Hall after hours using her own key. Yes, she is encouraging this insanity. She told people where Mayor Jenny Durkin's unlisted home was because she's a former U.S. attorney and her address is unlisted because she gets death threats. I can sympathize with that, even though I don't like Mayor Durkin. She took them there. They vandalized the property. She did nothing to stop it. She is creating this chaos. She is working with rioters, looters, and these peaceful protesters. Oh, I'm sorry. They're not actually rioters or looters. How could I be so mistaken? They're mostly peaceful. She is working with them. She is encouraging them. That's what she's being recalled for. While Salant and her allies have been profiting off the campaign, businesses in Seattle continue to flee. On Monday, Facebook announced that it is buying REI's unused complex in Bellevue, seemingly following Amazon's lead to take steps to abandon Seattle. Last week, Amazon did not renew its lease for the top eight floors of an office building in South Lake Union. The space totals over 180,000 square feet. Amazon, which leases over 6 million square feet of office space in Seattle, recently announced it will be bringing 25,000 jobs to Bell Bellevue. These reportedly include moving Seattle jobs to Bellevue. We could be in for a huge crash of the Seattle office market, real estate market. It could be a huge, huge crash because of how much space those guys occupy. And if the tech companies keep moving, one after the other after the other, because of this jumpstart Seattle, which... Kishama Sawant and Teresa Mosqueda. Oh, by the way, Teresa Mosqueda wants to run for mayor. Keep that in mind when you wonder when she makes promises about how she's going to fix the economy. And if those companies leave, who do you think they're going to tax when they have no companies left to tax? Don't say I didn't warn you. Businesses that relied on tech foot traffic in Seattle have been suffering and closing since the coronavirus shutdowns. For example, restaurants, barbershops, grocery stores. There are no, no more grocery stores in downtown Seattle. Gone. Poof. Gone. All these restaurants are closing. They will never come back. We're talking about hundreds of lost businesses, thousands of lost jobs. The last estimate I saw was 130 closed businesses and 47,000 lost jobs. Now the prospects of recovery seem slimmer by the day as more companies move out of Seattle in response to the Amazon tax that Salant and her allies claim 
was designed to help the workers and low-income earners who are now, ironically, suffering the most. Didn't I tell you this was going to happen? I keep telling you guys. I am going to warn you this is going to happen. This is going to come to your city. And people just don't listen. They don't listen. But here, it gets a little bit worse. Let's talk about this for a second. <coughs> if you think it stops at Seattle, you're wrong. This is how bad things have gotten. $75,987. Okay? That is the amount of money spent to date repairing the damage to Cal Anderson Park, which was at the center of the Capitol Occupied protest. That is on top of over a million dollars spent by the city of Seattle on installing and then removing barriers to, you know, secure the armed occupiers because they asked for them. Newly released emails continue to show that not only did Seattle officials know that this was not a peaceful protest, they continued to tell the media it was a block party, street fair, and a summer of love. Even while Seattle employees asked for the National Guard and were denied by Governor Jay Inslee. Let me say that again. Seattle employees were asking for the National Guard in CHOP and they were denied by Jay Inslee, Governor Jay Inslee, who now refuses to debate his challenger, Police Chief Lauren Culp, the law and order guy. I wonder why that is. You think it's any coincidence that Joe Biden may not end up debating Donald Trump? Just think about that for a second. This seems to be in the new par for the course for the Democrats. They will not debate the Republicans. Any incumbent right now has nothing to lose by doing this. They're going to get reelected in the landslide. I believe that every incumbent is going to win re-election because their challengers can't campaign with all the stuff going on. It is in their best interest to keep us shut down as long as possible. An email dated June 24th with the subject line safety plan, City of Seattle employees were already planning for dismantling of the CHOP. This was in response to shootings in the zone on June 20th, 21st, and 23rd, leaving four injured and a 19-year-old dead. The zone was already beginning to shrink as occupants began to leave following the violence and while the CHOP transitioned from an armed occupation to an armed homeless encampment. Joey Furuto, Division Director of Seattle Parks and Recreation, asked in the email coordinating safety for different city agencies, quote, still don't understand why National Guard is not an option. They literally picked Ballard Commons today, end quote. Following the outbreak of riots and looting in Seattle in the wake of, of the death of George Floyd at the end of May, Governor Jay Inslee deployed unarmed National Guard troops to cities. At the time, Inslee specified in his tweets and announcements that the National Guardsmen would be unarmed, even though rioters destroyed police cruisers, destroyed um, pretty much everything else, and even stole AR-15 assault riot, riot, rifles Excuse me, can't speak English today. from the cruisers. The unarmed guard had originally been deployed to assist with the homeless and food distribution during the coronavirus outbreak and were seen at other Seattle area parks following hepatitis outbreaks among the homeless campus in the park. So they were dealing with the homeless, which is important, don't get me wrong, but they're cleaning up Seattle and Washington State's screw-ups. But mind you, they couldn't protect businesses, they couldn't protect residents from armed occupation of their city or rioting and looting that is destroying their businesses and their life's work. In his email, Ferruto preferred to have the National Guard to assist with the dismantling and restoration of Cal Anderson Park. I have concerns that, quote, I have concerns that SPD will be redeployed during their time. They will be on site with us. Is having SPD alongside us the safest option for our staff? Ideally, SPD would have the area cleared prior, end quote. This was in response to an email from Rodney Maxey from the Seattle Department of Transportation stating that, quote, we are not writing a specific safety plan. Our plan is to have a small contingent of SPD officers with our crews and a large contingent of SPD officers outside the perimeter out of sight. If SPD agrees, as far as the other hazards associated with this work, they are covered in our safety manual and all of our employees have been trained. This includes all hazards around encampment removal. I believe your safety team has trained all of the park's employees on these hazards as well, since we have been working closely with your team for the last five years. End quote. So basically they're treating this like the end of a homeless encampment or a homeless encampment removal or a sweep as some people call it. They're not dealing with the fact that there's armed occupiers, armed rioters taking control of an area of the city where a bunch of people have been shot already. Seattle employees were originally planning on treating the dismantling of CHOP like the removal of any other homeless encampment, including the inherent dangers the city employees know exist in that job, risks that politicians continue to deny. Nope, they're all just people down on their luck. There are no drug problems, there are no criminal problems, there are no mental health issues. They keep denying that these things exist. Unbelievable. Waste management employees and social workers who work with the homeless 
are proposing only social, or sorry, are now the politicians are proposing that only social workers perform the duties. Business owners who have called the city since the defunding for encampment removal have been told by the social workers that they are required to provide bathrooms and food to people living on their sidewalks. So imagine this, your business, and you say, I've got this homeless encampment here, they're stealing, they're breaking in, they're causing all these kind of problems. City social worker shows up now, this happened to a friend of mine right nearby my office, and they said, well, give them a sandwich and give them access to the bathroom and everything will be fine. That is the mantra here. The urban campers refuse social services and remain as the encampments expand. That has been going on across the city. If you drive through Seattle, the encampments are out of control. They're everywhere. And they are coming from other places because they know how easy it is to get access to these services here. Yet Seattle officials knew the danger their employees faced as well as residents in the neighborhood while still denying it to the media. Residents trapped in the chop wrote a group letter to the city council, Mayor Jenny Durkin, and other city officials. Quote, in the last two weeks, with the recent spike in violent activities and crimes, we no longer feel safe to step outside our homes. With the relocation of protesters closer to the East Precinct in the last few days, we have seen an increase in the homeless population on the north end of Cal Anderson Park. Our once beautiful space is now littered with tents, vehicles, and trash. This is growing every single day, along with continued increase in vandalism to the park and surrounding area. Just last night, the occupiers of this area lit a trash can on fire on top of a fountain here in the park. We have witnessed increased vandalism to our neighborhood, including damaging parked cars and graffiti on residential areas. We are afraid to leave our homes and feel like hostages. We are forced to look out the window and stare at our destroyed park. Our physical and mental health is at stake. With the recent shootings, some residents are now seeking therapy to deal with this trauma. With some of the highest property taxes in the state of Washington, it is unacceptable that this has gone on for two plus weeks now, end quote. That's what the residents of the CHOP are saying, the people living in there who are under occupation. Yet Governor Jay refused to deploy the National Guard to CHOP and even posted defiant statements to President Donald Trump stating that he wanted to send the, the Guard and other federal law enforcement to CHOP and that he would act if they would not. Mayor Jenny Durkin even forced federal officials to leave Seattle even though their own employees were requesting them. In the emails, Seattle officials seem more concerned about transporting plants that occupiers had tried to plant in the synthetic turf field in the park to gardens around the city and preserving graffiti and BLM art rather than the safety of their employees or residents. The total cost of the cleanup of CHOP continued to accumulate. Costs have not yet been released for the damage to the East Precinct, which was abandoned and occupied and vandalized by rioters. Even though residents keep asking when the park will reopen to the public, the city now plans on reimagining the park. Costs to be determined. This is literally in the emails I got. All wall riots continue almost nightly in Seattle with no end in sight. It's across the country. I told you guys it was coming. They're just looking for a spark to have an excuse. Kenosha, uh, Lancaster, they're just looking for the excuses to light another city on fire. It started in Portland. It came here. Nobody was paying attention. Now it's everywhere. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined once again by one of my favorite guests, Todd Myers from the Washington Policy Center. Todd has some experience together with the Department of Natural, working for the Department of Natural Resources, and I want to pick his brain about what's going on with the wildfires. There's a lot of accusations flying about arson now as well, but from a lot of people I talk to, there seems to be some discussion about climate change being a factor or just general conditions that happen every single year. Todd, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can we start from the top of all this? There's so many different stories going around. I just want to understand and be clear on everything. So what typically causes these kind of large fires that we see seasonally in Washington, Oregon, and California? So there are primarily two causes. One is human-caused, either accidental or um, uh, arson. Um, arson is fairly common, actually, more than people realize. So um, there's a lot of talk about a number of these being arson. There was a guy who was literally caught near Puyallup lighting the median of um, a road on fire. Um, so people are concerned that this is some sort of coordinated attack. Um, I don't I don't know if that's true or not, but I can tell you that arson is more common than people realize, unfortunately. But most fires, especially forest fires, are caused simply by people that are not putting out their um, campfire or other things like that that cause fire. The other cause is lightning, and lightning is a lot of what is caused in California. 
And what you get when you have very unhealthy forests is that lightning that wouldn't start a fire or would start a small ground fire then blows up because essentially when you have a lot of dead trees that are killed by bugs and other things like that, um, uh, uh, an ecosystem that is very resilient to fire and won't catch fire now turns into a tinderbox, is basically standing matchsticks, and then it really goes up. So those are kinds of the ways that fires typically get started. So you said something interesting. What is the difference between a healthy forest and an unhealthy forest? Because it seems that forest management seems to be at the root of this discussion. Yeah, it's, it, it should be a part of the discussion. Um, and the piece I wrote at the WashingtonPolicy.org um, blog talked about that and the importance of it. What we're seeing this year in Washington State is a lot of grass fires. So you hear these huge numbers like 300,000 acres burned. If that was forest fire, that would be unbelievably huge. But it's a lot of grass fires. Now, those fires still do damage. The, the little community in eastern Washington that was destroyed was destroyed um, by a grass fire, not a forest fire. They aren't in a forest. But um, what you have with forests is, is that forests need to be spaced out. These very clogged, very lots of trees all together, dark forests, that's not natural, especially in eastern Washington. In Eastern Washington, Ponderosa Pine, you have lots of space between them, and then the branches are very high. So what happens if you get a fire, it goes, it'll clear the ground cover, but it won't actually get up into the trees. And when you harvest a tree, you can actually count the tree rings and you can see where the fires were because it scars the, the, the bark, but doesn't kill the tree. And that's what you want. That's a healthy forest that, can, that is resistant to fire. What you have when you have too many trees together is they're all fighting for a limited amount of light, nutrients, and water. And I remember a forest manager in Eastern Washington saying, too many trees creates drought. So all this talk about climate change creating drought, even if you have a good snowpack, good you know, water year, but you have too many trees, it creates drought because they're all dry. And when they're all dry, they don't have the energy to fight insect infestation. And so insects get in and then kill those trees. So that's the problem with bad forest management is that if you don't thin, if you don't create the space for those big trees, you get a lot of little trees. And then when fire hits it, it rips through there. So what I've noticed is I moved here 17 years ago and I've only really noticed the, wash, the wildfires in Washington affecting Western Washington in the past five or six years. That seems to be something new where these fires are so big that they're affecting us. So what really changed between then and now that now we're seeing smoke in Seattle? Um, I think it's partially just bad luck. I think it's a little bit chickens coming home to roost with unhealthy forests. Um, the, the state, the Washington State Department of Natural Resources has a very good map of unhealthy forests in eastern Washington. And you see there's a lot of forests in eastern Washington that are not natural, that can't resist fire, that are very unhealthy. And so what happens when those go up is, is that large areas go up. But, you know, I worked on forest fires um, in eastern Washington 20 years ago, and we would get smoke, uh, maybe not like now, but, but smoke would come over. So this is not entirely a new thing. Um, I think it is worse. Climate change is not, I mean, there's nothing different about the temperatures and the snowpack and other things this year or in the last five years as, a pair, as compared to 15 and 20 years ago. Um, we have very similar temperatures. They're within the same margin of error. We actually have had very high snowpacks in the last several years. So if you're looking for a climate nexus to these and you look at the data, it's just not there. Um, so I, it, it's just very unlikely that something related to climate change is why we're seeing so what's the big divide in the forest management? People are upset about Jay Inslee's management of the forest, and they criticize that frequently, but most people have no idea or understand what that means. What should he be doing that he's not doing, in your opinion? Well, I think Jay is not committed to cleaning up these forests. Um, when he was in Congress, he actually proposed a bill that would uh, limit forest restoration, whether that's thinning or whether that's controlled burns or other things like that to reduce the risk of fire to within half a mile of communities. 
So 85% of the money would, from the federal government would have to be spent within half a mile of communities. But that's not where the unhealthy forests are. The unhealthy forests are up you know, farther away. And, and when a fire gets ripping in those forests and moves into town, you can have a half mile buffer, but that buffer is not gonna be perfect and you're still gonna get a very hot fire that moves in. So for, for a long time, he hasn't been supportive of these kinds of efforts. He seems to have changed his mind recently and when he came into office, he actually set a target of forest treatments, increasing forest treatments from about 145,000 acres a year to 200,000 acres a year by 2017. At the end of 2016 though, when it was clear that they weren't gonna meet that target, he just simply pulled that target off of the webpage for Results Washington and hit it, <laughs> rather than try to figure a way to meet that target. Um, in, a, in the press conference this week where he talked about climate change, climate change, climate change as being the cause of these, he was asked about forest management and he said, oh yeah, absolutely, we support that. But again, it's not a priority. He's not meeting his own targets. He doesn't mention it as important unless he's prompted right? Whereas climate change, he constantly mentioned. The other thing about the ridiculous thing about the difference between forest management and climate change is if we do everything Jay wants, not just in Washington, but across the United States, it will reduce temperatures in the year 2100 by a fraction of a degree. Average summer temperatures vary by several degrees each year. A fraction of a degree is not going to make a difference in the number of forest fire, forest fires. What does make a difference is getting those forests back to a healthy state. So if you wanna do something within the next five and 10 years to make sure that we're not getting smoke every year, to make sure that communities aren't being lost, you could do everything on climate change and it would do zero to stop forest fires. Making forests healthy is the thing that we can do. It's not gonna address everything we're seeing this year because I said, you know, as I said, some of these are grass fires and other wildland fires, but that's one part of it and it's an important part. There was something funny that somebody just sent me, a friend of the show, just sent me a graphic that the CDC released the other day with a post where they were talking about how your mask will not help you with smoke inhalation and that you it won't help and that you should continue wearing them for COVID-19. However, my research has shown that smoke particles are bigger than COVID-19 particles. So why do we think the masks are going to work for that? <laughs> I just thought... That was an entertaining thing. Um, Todd Myers, thank you so much for being with us. If people want to read your stuff on forest management and about what's going on with the wildfires, what's the best way for them to do so? So go to WashingtonPolicy.org. I have a blog about the sort of the climate forest management debate. Um, I also spent uh, a day with the Colville uh, tribes in uh, central Washington about what they do to manage their forest to fight forest fire. We're going to have a video coming out in the next few weeks about what the tribes do because the tribes actually do a really good job and they follow the science. Um, so they're a really good leader on this and we'll have something about that coming out in the next few weeks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Todd. We appreciate it. And we will be back after a word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the season premiere of season two of Canary in a Coal Mine. Remember, if you like the podcast to rate, subscribe, and share, Remember to all my haters out there that if you hate the podcast to rate, subscribe, and share, make sure you tell everybody all the stuff I say because you're doing a great job getting up my analytics, and that gets us more advertisers. So I really appreciate everybody's hard work. Thank you so much. Remember, if everybody invites just one friend to like the podcast, we double our numbers overnight. We get the message out there more and more and more. And please continue to send me your messages. Continue to send me your stories. My best source of leads is you. So... This was a quote. This is not my quote. It'll become clear soon whose quote it is. Quote, this country has a long history of oppressing people of color, especially black and African-American people. The last couple weeks, we have seen demonstrations of systematic racism on full display across our country to the point of murder of black people. I share in the horror and sadness displayed by the police systems across the country and by some officers here in our own city. End quote. No, these words were not mine. Those words were sent to students, not parents, of Seattle Public Schools in an email from Superintendent Denise Juno. According to Safe Seattle, who received the information from angry parents, the email was sent back in June. However, the students are just receiving it because their school laptops were issued this week. If that isn't government complete insanity, I don't know what is, or complete breakdown. Juno praised the violent riots and looting happening in Seattle and seemed to encourage SPS students' participation. 
Quote, it has been a powerful experience watching you take to the streets to make your voices heard. End quote. This is while rioting was going on. This is right before the chop while rioting was going on and they were attacking police officers every night in front of the East Precinct. Yes, so inspiring. While SPS is preaching hate to impressionable students without their parents' knowledge, the SPS remote learning continues to flounder. I wrote a story last week about how the laptops aren't working right, students can't log in, and there may be thousands of students who are dropping out of the Seattle public school system. Less than half of SPS students have even logged into the remote learning, which continues the trend of 2019-2020 school year when over half of the Seattle students did not even sign into Schoology, the portal for online learning. Rather than working out the bugs for the remote learning, SPS focused on subjecting their staff to a racist and misogynistic training before school started, which was in line with the superintendent's emails to students. Did you know we're all white supremacists? That this is a white supremacist society, that me, the Jewish guy, and you, whatever race or religion you are, we're all white supremacists, according to the training that they paid for. Yet as early as May, SPS was discussing not returning to in-person schooling in the fall, which leads many parents to ask why the district was so unprepared and what were they doing instead. Right. They were working on this anti-racism nonsense rather than actually focusing on the problem at hand of trying to get kids an education. The answers to both questions may lie partially with the state. Superintendent of Public Instruction in Washington State Chris Rakedahl proposed a plan to return to in-person learning that would discriminate based on race. Yes, kids of different races. The African-American kids get to come back first, and then the Latino kids, and those white kids, they're all the way in the back. They don't deserve an education. <sighs> Unbelievable. Additionally, during an unprecedented crisis, Rakedahl was vacationing out of state against COVID travel recommendations of Washington State Governor Jay Inslee and the Washington State Department of Health. Now, I have no problem with people taking vacations. I have no problem with taking, people taking vacations during crisis because they need a few days off, especially for their anniversary like Rakedahl did. But if you're buying hook, line, and sinker into all these safety requirements, should you be wearing masks and socially distancing, which he clearly wasn't from the pictures, and he was going out of state. Drive somewhere. My whole family spent the whole summer driving because we didn't want to get on airplane. Please, explain that to me. Anyway, the answers to both questions. Oh, I'm sorry. We did that already. Last year, in response to the average grade of failing for SPS students, a trend which continued over many years before COVID, long before COVID. While also blaming accessibility to remote learning, SPS changed the grading system. In April, when in-person learning was canceled and the system switched to online only, SPS used the opportunity to create a Seattle School Board of Ex they to create this whole new idea, this new grading system. The school board of directors announced the approval of a new temporary grading policy for the high school students in Seattle Public Schools. At the time, SPS Superintendent Juno told MyNorthwest.com, after looking at several options, we determined that the A or incomplete policy is the best option to make sure the extended school building closure doesn't harm any of our students, particularly those furthest from educational justice. What does she mean by educational justice? Everybody's got exact, it's all equity right now. Everybody has a laptop. Everybody has access to Wi-Fi, thanks to the big tech companies that they demonize all the time. SPS might finally be realizing that their social justice grading system is not equitable for everyone. SPS announced this week in their back to virtual school facts that the grading policy had changed from A or incomplete to A through C minus or incomplete. According to a release from SPS regarding the change, grading has been one of the biggest sources of inequities in education because student performance may be influenced by factors outside of students' control. The temporary grading policy was developed using the district's racial equity analysis tool to be sure it's fair for all students, regardless of their access to resources, technology, or other outside opportunities. Literally, everybody's getting the same laptop, and they're all getting the exact same Wi-Fi and everything. What is the problem here? They're all being failed by you guys because they can't log into the system. What SPS meant by lack of access to resources or technology is unclear. In March, SPS announced that there would be no online learning, claiming that low-income students did not have access to technology. Local tech companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Xfinity, and CenturyLink stepped up to donate the required devices and provide free Wi-Fi so every student would have access. So you're all equal. It's equitable. Right across the board. <clears throat> Excuse me. According to SPS, attendance will be taken this year, but the method is still being determined. You're not even sure how you're going to be taking attendance? What happened to here, 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 here? Done. If a kid's having online problems, text the teacher and say, I can't log in. When the A or incomplete policy was first announced, pushback was immediate from private school and charter school students and parents claiming that admission standards to college were now judging students on inflated merits. The system had been tried and failed in other locations, most noticeably making international headlines for being reversed in the United Kingdom. Yet still, SPS forged ahead with the plan. Additionally, it became harder for engaged parents to track their children's progress. 
Now it seems as if SPS is realizing that the social justice grading program is not equitable for students, especially those that do log in and put in the work. SPS reinstituted some of the grades, including an A through C minus or incomplete system. What the SPS means by students of color furthest from educational justice remains a question now that all the technology and resource gaps have been donated by tech companies and everybody's using the exact same stuff. As students in other districts in Washington, as well as some private schools, return to in-person learning, many SPS students, especially single parents and dual-income families, have opted for other options, including creating their own educational pods with neighbors and friends. Parents cited subpar education from SPS, as well as extreme activism rather than actual content being taught in the classroom as reasons for the change. The closures were just a straw that broke the camel's back. Seattle parents are even being targeted with social media ads asking parents to enroll their children in Seattle public schools. I've never seen those things before, and they're popping up nonstop on my feed. So either they have too much money to spend or they're in real trouble. Even before the mandated closures, SPS enrollment numbers have been steadily declining for years. The enrollment numbers for fall 2020 have yet to be released, but rumors persist that it could be down by the thousands. I got a preliminary number, and it is up, which makes no sense to me whatsoever given the amount of people that are leaving the educational system. The Seattle Times even had this number in their article about half the kids not signing on. Perhaps one of the reasons half the kids aren't signing on is half those kids aren't enrolled anymore. SPS parents, especially low-income families that rely on public school for daycare, that are used as the excuse for the activism are now faced with the decision continue to allow a failing system to indoctrinate their children or find costly alternatives they may not be able to afford. I guarantee you Seattle isn't the only place this is happening. You gotta look into your public school system and you gotta see what's going on. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined by Matt Larkin who is running to unseat Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who I would very much like to see out of office. I make no secret about that. I've had my issues with him before. So, Matt, you have my support in this election. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. All right. Happy to be here. Awesome. So let's start off with one thing. In the coronavirus era, it's very difficult to campaign. Bob Ferguson is one of the people who made it that way by banning Facebook ads in Washington state. Is this something, a policy of his, that you plan to continue, or is this something you want to find a way to change? You know what, I would love to find a way to change it because I am a first time candidate uh, and the deck is stacked against me. Uh, it's stacked against all first time candidates uh, because this Facebook ban uh, has made it really hard to get grassroots support. And, and we're, we're cruising, we're doing awesome. We, we went from 150 volunteers to over 1200 uh, as of yesterday. Uh, so we're doing awesome, but, but it certainly has been a hurdle that we've had to overcome. Uh, and what happened, I'm sure you know, as much about it as I do, uh, but for your listeners, he, he, he sued Facebook on behalf of the state of Washington uh, to ban political ads on Facebook. Uh, but the key there is before he did that, he built up his own Facebook following. He invested thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into building up his Facebook following. And then he pulled the ladder up after him when he climbed into the treehouse so that no one else could do what he did. Uh, and that's not fair. That's not right. Uh, and it prevents a lot of first-time candidates and new candidates like me from gaining the same kind of Facebook traction that he benefited from. Uh, so it was very hypocritical. Uh, it was very obvious what went on. Uh, and uh, yeah, I plan on changing that because I think it should be a citizen democracy. I think people uh, like you and me should be able to get in and have access to the same kinds of advantages that incumbents have. I know that specifically with me when I was running for office, I was running Facebook ads and everything were going swimmingly and then that ban went into effect mm -hmm. and it was much harder to reach people. And the interesting thing about it was I got just as many haters as I did supporters from the ads that I ran. And you were able to have a conversation when people disagreed with you. And it's unfortunate that now we can't have the discourse. Some of them yeah. are not civil, but you can't even have the civil discourses that we had before that ban went to effect. It seems like a freedom, freedom of speech issue for me. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right. It's not always going to be people you agree with, uh, but that's the whole goal, right? That's why you ran for office. That's why I'm running for office so that we can hear all sides of it so that we can listen to everybody in the state uh, and, and hear their concerns. And I agree with some of them and some of them I think may be misguided, but the point is we're listening and we should be listening and we should be able to hear from as many people uh, as possible. And, and this Facebook ban uh, perpetrated by Bob Ferguson has, has made it really difficult to do that. 
Okay, well, now that I've gotten rid of the issue that gets my goat the most that I want to talk to you about, let's go through the stuff that's on your platform on your website. So I saw that you have a bunch of hot button issues, but my question really is, you have homelessness on there, you have drug abuse on there, you have all the things that hit the you know, center, center, right, even some of the left that are not socialists, they all agree with you on that. But mm-hmm. what can the attorney general really do about these things? Oh, tons. And I get that question a lot. They say, Matt, isn't that a local problem? Isn't that something that the attorney general should stay out of? My answer is, is absolutely not. The attorney general needs to be in the middle of these discussions. Uh, he has a very big platform as the chief legal officer in the state of Washington. He should be involved. I, I need to roll my sleeves up uh, when I'm elected and dive into these problems. Because if not me, if not the attorney general, then who? Uh, he needs to be leading the discussion. Uh, and that starts by, we have a huge attorney general attorney general's office. We've got the fifth largest AG's office in the country. Uh, and we're not the fifth biggest state in the union. So, so we have a, a, a attorney general's office that is out of proportion, uh, but we can use that for good. We have all of these attorneys in there right now who are suing President Trump. Uh, 77 times as of uh, last time I checked, as of yesterday, uh, 77 Trump lawsuits uh, over three and a half years of President Trump being in office. Those are resources that could be better directed. Uh, the attorney general can lean on the, on the county and local governments. They can lean on the mayors and the prosecutors and say, do your job uh, or else we're going to do it for you. And the attorney general also has prosecutorial powers. So we can prosecute criminals from the AG's office. Uh, and, and my plan is to free up more of those prosecutors in the AG's office and put them at the disposal of all of the cities around the state that are struggling to manage their caseloads, who are struggling to prosecute crime. You know, you do know, because you're a Seattle guy, and I I'm a, grew up in Magnolia, so I claim Seattle is my home. Um, 89% of nonviolent arrests in Seattle go without a, a resolution in the courts. 89%, that's nine out of 10. Uh, something needs to change on the ground. Uh, and the AG's office should be the first one to be offering help. Uh, and as a former criminal prosecutor myself, I get it. We had big caseloads. We needed help. And if the AG had said, come on in and, and we've got a team of prosecutors who are willing to alleviate whatever, whatever you need from the criminal prosecution level, uh, we would have taken them up on it. Uh, so, so that's my plan, and I think there's a lot you can do. You, you, it, but again, at the end of the day, you're the leader of the state's legal office, uh, so you need to be vocal about it. And right now, we have an attorney general who is silent about it. He hasn't said a word about any of this stuff. And all of these things, this rising homelessness, this rising drug abuse, this rising crime, has been going up and up and up over the last eight years under Bob Ferguson's watch. And when Washingtonians feel like the watchdog is asleep, uh, nothing is happening. Uh, He's silent about all of these things. Instead, he just wants to focus on President Trump, President Trump, President Trump. And I'm saying no. Washingtonians have a clear uh, difference between me and Bob. I want to focus on this Washington, not that Washington. We have real problems here, and I'm ready to fix them. But what are your top three issues? The, The three things that you're in office tomorrow, what are the three things you want to focus on right out of the gate? We want to make our cities safe again. That's number one. And that kind of has some multi-prongs attached to it. Uh, but that includes uh, being tougher on drug dealers, the people flooding these drugs into our communities. Uh, that includes uh, reconnecting ICE with local and state law enforcement so that they can cooperate uh, and end some of these horrible things that are happening in our state, not one of which is sex trafficking. We have a real sex trafficking problem in this state. Uh, Number two is actually redirecting the office resources to solving problems on the ground. Uh, And it's not just crime. We have all of these things are interwoven through the homeless issue. Uh, When 80% of our homeless are mentally addicted to drugs or mentally ill, there's a problem there. And and crime surrounds homelessness uh, for obvious reasons because it costs a lot of money to support addiction. Uh, some figures are $30,000 a year. Some figures are as high as $60,000 a year. Uh, but because of that, these, these homeless drug addicts, it's very sad, all right? They're, 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 it, they're surrounded in these crimes of, of breaking into cars, of petty theft, of shoplifting, of muggings. Uh, and, and that's not okay. Uh, we need to solve the root of the problem. Uh, And that involves working with community leaders. On day one, we would set up a task force to work with community leaders 
uh, nonprofit leaders, president of the Union Gospel Mission, the heads of Mary's Place, organizations like that who are actually on the ground doing really good work. I would love to be able to say uh, you've got help from the Attorney General's office. All of these things affect the safety of Washingtonians, so we uh, at the Attorney General's office are going to focus on helping you through these things. Uh, so there's a lot. We have a lot to do from day one, uh, but I'm excited, and we've got a lot of changes to make. Well, you're saying all the right things and the things I like to hear, and I'm sure the people in my audience like to hear. So if people want to volunteer or donate for your campaign or learn more about your campaign, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? We've got a great website. You can, it's a one-stop shop. You can go to uh, www.mattlarkinforag.com. That's the word for, F-O-R. Uh, you can donate there. Uh, you, can, you can volunteer there. You can find out more about me and my platform. Uh, and you can get involved. You can link to Facebook from there. We've got a very active Facebook page. Uh, but first and foremost, we need donations. Bob Ferguson's got just about $3.8 million raised right now. Um, he's a fundraising machine because he, he likes these Trump lawsuits. And without fail, uh, he gets, sends out a fundraising email after each one of them. Uh, so we are trying to catch up, but we're crossing over the $360,000 mark and climbing quick. Uh, so we need support. Uh, in, in the financial way, if possible, but, but get involved. We, we've got these volunteers. People are passionate, Ari. And as I'm going around the state and I'm in Zoom calls in every county in the state of Washington, I'm hearing the same level of concern and I'm hearing the same level of passion. People are ready to make a change at the attorney general level. Uh, and it's not just about crime and safety. It's about change. It's about accountability in Olympia. And, and should we have to work with uh, Governor Inslee for another four years, it would be nice to have a counterbalance in there. Someone who's a counterweight, uh, giving him not rubber stamping all of his decisions, uh, but actually holding him accountable and giving him sound legal advice uh, from a perspective that he might not uh, agree with. But, but they, there needs to be that difference of opinion uh, in Olympia. So people are excited about that and they're getting on board with my race. I think that too many people don't realize that this is what caused by one party rule and mm -hmm. that if they want to stop complaining and want to have new solutions, they got to vote for a party. They may not have done so in the past. Matt, That's thanks exactly so much right. for being with us. I wish you the best of luck in your race. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll be right back after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the coal mine. A little off topic for today, but right now as I'm recording this, the historic peace agreements between Israel, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and the U.S. are being signed in front of the White House. I remember when I was a kid, and I was in middle school, I think it was, when the Oslo Accords were being signed in front of the White House with Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat and, and uh, Yitzhak Rabin. And the Oslo Accords pretty much said that if the Jews give up certain areas of Israel to the Palestinians, then there will be peace. And it was a colossal disaster. Suicide bombings went up, violence went up, the Palestinians didn't keep anything, and it was worse than it was before. These new peace accords have recognized the facts on the ground that you can't negotiate with terrorists, that land for peace does not work, and that peace for peace works. What can we learn from this? I'm, I'm optimistic about peace in the Middle East for the first time in a very, very long time. What can we learn from this? We're giving in to the demands of terrorists across the country. You don't want to call Antifa terrorists? I'm calling them terrorists. The people out on the streets blowing things up, lighting fires to things, looting stores, rioting, those are terrorists. And they're not going to stop until they get what they want. I'm not even sure they know what they want right now. They want an overthrow of the U.S. government. That's what they want. They want Marxism. They don't want capitalism. Who knows what even they... I don't even think most of them know what they want. But what can we learn from what's going on right now? You get peace through economic prosperity. These other countries are seeing what's going on with Israel and how it's become a tech hub and how it's become an economic success, how it went from a socialist economy to a capitalist economy. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. And how through economic success, it opens the doors for them. Some people say Donald Trump is a racist. Oh, no, Donald Trump sees one color and it's green. Money paved the way for this, but also something else did was the shared threat from Iran. Things got so bad under the Obama administration when he's giving piles of cash to the Iranians and making all these deals where they can develop nuclear weapons and telling Israel they have to give back everything before, the, before 1967. They have to give it all back. Go back to the pre-1967 borders. This set the stage for it. The Middle East being in chaos is what set the stage for this deal. And it recognized the facts on the ground that most of these countries have everything to gain by normalizing relations with Israel, by making peace with Israel. 
and that yet while these agreements are being signed the palestinians are launching rockets from gaza into and near civilian targets in israel it shows you everything right there um, golda Meir and um, netanyahu has repeated this quote many many times if the arabs laid down their weapons tomorrow there would be peace there would be no more war no more violence if the israelis laid down their weapons tomorrow there would be no more israel you are literally seeing that happen in real time in real time the Arabs are saying they want peace, and we're having peace with these countries. Other Arabs are saying, no, the Palestinians are saying, no, we want war, and they're trying to kill Israelis. While peace accords are being signed, if they came to the table today, there would be peace tomorrow. Think about that. So what's going on in the streets of the country? These are terrorists, and you have to treat them as such. You know, the closest thing I can think is an analogy to Antifa is terrorism. It's like terrorist cells operate independently, but with one shared larger goal. And we now know that from Portland and what's going on, these classified leaked documents that talk about how Antifa is more than just this non-existent group of anarchists. It's a lot more than that. That's what we're dealing with, and these are the lessons we can learn from it. And I hope that there is peace in the world because we've been at war for far, far too long. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll see you on the next episode of Canary in a Coal Mine.